some point. And it's, it's, it's simply this. In that sport, anyone not know the GOAT is? The GOAT the greatest of all time is what it stands for. Um, in case you're not, you're not big into sports. And this is, this is ESPN probably spends 20% of, of all of their billions of dollars of worth of airtime. 20% is arguing about this thing in various different sports and positions. Is who is the greatest? Who is the greatest of all time? You hear a lot about, you know, right now the kind of the, the hot ones are, you know, NFL quarterbacks with Tom Brady's retirement or in basketball it's, you know, who, who is it, LeBron or is it Jordan and these sorts of things. Um, why am I talking about sports greatest of all times? Well, that argument, while in sports, and this is the, the funny thing, in sports, it's pretty much unanswerable in reality, right? In any given sport, they're trying to compare people that lived sometimes 30, 40 years apart, right? <laughs> in different, different genres of, of that same sport, different rules, different, completely different um, scenarios. And, and we're trying to extrapolate which one, which one's better. But before you even have that discussion, you have to decide um, how do you define better, right? Is it, is it most wins? Is it scored the most points? Is it, you know, what meant the most to their team? There's all these different different criteria, ways you can define that word. Well, Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it's, it's in the New Testament, even though it's Hebrews, it sounds like an Old Testament book, right? It's called Hebrews, but it's a New Testament book. Um, the author seeks to answer that, who is the greatest of all time, for specifically directed towards Jewish Christians because he wants to make crystal clear that there is one greatest of all time and that his name is Jesus. Amen? And you will see throughout this book as we go through it, um, the author will time and time again, we will continue to keep coming back to all of these different ways that Jesus is greater than. Right? He is greater than, and that's the kind of the subtitle. Jesus is, that's a greater than sign, by the way. Greater than everything. Um, and, and, and this is a question, it, it may seem like, you know, well, we're, 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 not, we're not Jews. We're not, um, you know, coming out of an Old Testament mindset. I get it. I know, I know Jesus is, is, is greater than everything. But, but do we? Do we really? And that's what, as we dig into this, I think um, this book challenges us with, is, is those, that Sunday school right answer. Is our life really reflective of, of that truth that we in our heads, or we intellectually know is the right answer? Does our, do our lives look like we believe that's the right answer? And so we're going to be diving into this for the next number of weeks. Um, but before we really get into to the text, uh, just a, some context of the book itself. Um, we, don't know, um, we don't know who wrote it. it it's a big question. Uh, we, we know it wasn't one of the, uh, we're pretty sure it wasn't one of the apostles, um, uh, but it was somebody who was taught by them. Um, and there's a bunch of people who have a bunch of opinions about about who exactly it was, um, and to be honest, it, it would be nice to know, it would be fun to know, but it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> it is what it is. We, we know what, what it says, and it's still valuable to us. Uh, we know that this is a, a, a tricky book. Um, it's, a, it's not the easiest, um, most straightforward book. Um, simply because of its its original audience, it was written to um, Jewish Christians that have had a level of understanding of the Old Testament that, for the most part, none of us will ever fully rise to. <laughs> All right. So throughout this book, you will they use a, almost a short a sort of shorthand where the author uh, will just just mention a phrase or a snippet from something in the Old Testament that to the audience he was writing to um, would have kind of been a, 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 a kind of a pull quote to, to say a whole bunch of other things, right? Um, it's kind of like you, you have a friend that, that loves to quote movies, 
Um, and, you know, you're in conversation. They're always quoting these movies, these random things, and, and they think it's funny, but you have no idea what they're talking about because you didn't see that movie. Um, if, if you don't know that, if you don't know a person like that, it's probably because you are that person. Um, that would be me. I'm, I'm famous for that. Um, Fortunately, Shannon has lived with me long enough. She, she understands. If I say something that doesn't make sense, it's probably just I'm quoting some dumb movie she's never seen. Um, and she should just look at me and go, is that a movie quote? Yeah, okay. Um, but that's, that's kind of the, the feeling we get when we, when we read Hebrews, that there, there are these phrases that to them meant a lot because they understood the original context that that phrase was saying. But for us, we read it and we kind of like tend to, we just, our, our reflex is to skip over it, or we've got to do a lot of digging to figure out what it is they're talking about. And so um, as we go through, we'll, we'll look to highlight some of those things to kind of bring some, some, some added understanding, because once you do, once you do the digging, it's worth it. Um, the, the, it's not that it's, it's, it's too complicated to understand. There's just this extra layer of, um, of kind of I'm going to say research, but extra checking you got to do to figure out what it is since we're not, we, we don't have the, the Old Testament memorized, um, which basically many of them did. They had, they had, you know, it was an, it was an oral tradition back then. Uh, people, they had, I, I wish I had the memory of a, of a first century um, person in general because their, their ability in life, because they just didn't write things down as much, they were able to memorize chunks of things. And I'm lucky if I know my phone number um, because we got these things, right? And they just remember everything for us. So we've like lost that. <laughs> we've adapted and lost that ability. It's kind of sad. Um, so it's a tricky book. Um, it's chock full of references. We, we mentioned that. Um, it's also, we put this in the, the, the category of the epistles, but it's kind of not. It's a weird epistle, um, mainly because it doesn't have most of what we consider uh, the form of an epistle. An epistle is, you know, in the New Testament, it's the letters. It's the letters that different church leaders wrote to different uh, churches, different areas, um, and you'll see as we, we begin the, the text, much of the things that the, the forms that we would say that's what makes up a letter, it doesn't have. Uh, Hebrews doesn't have, doesn't have a greeting. It doesn't have a lot of uh, current context. He doesn't speak directly to a group of people or, or, or cite a specific situation necessarily. Um, there's, no final, there's no final word. There's no prayer for. Um, all of these are forms that you find in almost all the other, the other letters. What, what we see in Hebrews is really it reads more like a sermon. It's, it's, a, it's an extended teaching or word of, of, of encouragement and, and exhortation and instruction, um, not, just, not just a letter. And so you'll see that as we, as we start to... To dig into it, like it, so it's a, it's a weird epistle, um, it's a tricky epistle, but but it's a it's a good epistle. I don't I don't want to sell you off of it. What I can say is that it was written by someone who was trained by the apostles. Um, it was they think it was written somewhere around the, the late uh, like sixty seven A D, right around the time Paul. So Paul the apostle is 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 about to be crucified probably. Um, hasn't quite yet, but he's in jail. Uh, persecution of the church in general is, is increasing and ramping up. Um, it was written at a time where there was a growing number of alternate Christianities uh, kind of emerging out of this culture. And this is for the first time, you know, 67 AD, Christianity is like 30 years old. Right, so it's amazing how it doesn't take long, right? Just like one one generation from Jesus being the one teaching the gospel, and we already have kind of the birth of some of these alternate Christianities, these these what we would call maybe cults or, or, or false doctrines popping up, and um, a lot of Hebrews is. Uh, foundational doctrine spelled out to combat some of those false teachings. Now, um, and you'll see as we go through them, we'll kind of kind of highlight, we won't spend a lot of time focusing on it, but uh, we will see, uh, see them from time to time. And one of the things you'll notice is, you know, it's 2,000 years later almost, um, 
things haven't changed a whole lot. The same false teachings that they were dealing with in the first century church, we still see today. Maybe repackaged, re, you know, look a, li- a slightly different, but the heart of them, the falsity behind them is the same. And so we'll, we'll see some of that, we'll highlight some of that stuff because it's important that we, we know we have sound doctrine, that we can identify when something isn't, isn't, isn't lining up with, with the gospel that we know to be true. From the text, it's clear that the purpose of this letter is, is kind of twofold. Encourage uh, and, and exhort a group who is struggling. Because of what we just talked about, the situation that was going on, there were many that were struggling to, to answer the question, is, is this worth it? Is Christianity really the best way to go? Is Jesus really the best option for my faith to be put in? That's why the, the theme you see running through Hebrews is the answer to that question is, yes, Jesus is better. Over and over and over again. He's writing with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to reignite and, and strengthen their faith. And I don't know about you, I could, I could, I could use some of that right now. <laughs> I, I, need, I know I need reignited. I need my, my faith strengthened. And so that's one of the reasons I feel like we're, this is the right time to kind of look at this book. But before we dive in to how the writer does encourage and exhort this, uh, this group of, of Hebrews, wherever, wherever, wherever they were, um, I want to mention two things that he doesn't do, because I think that's significant as well. Sometimes what we don't do um, can teach us as much as the things that we tell somebody to do. The first thing is that he doesn't give them, you will see in this, in it's Hebrews is 12 chapters, and nowhere in there does he give them a fix what we would consider a fix for their circumstance. Nowhere in there in this is, is a, you know, here's, hey guys, here's, here's the four, four short ways to live at peace with the emperor of Rome. There's no, there's no uh, you know, six steps to a, hap, ha, to a happy Greek existence. There, there's, there's no, hey, here's how, to, here's how to love God and make money. There's none of that in, in this book. You won't, you won't see that. He is honest about the persistence and the pain of the problems they're facing. And that's one thing I love about Scripture. It's real. It's not afraid to confront the, the harsh realities of, of the world that we are living in. It doesn't deny them. And, and the writer here doesn't do that either. So he doesn't give them a, a fix for their circumstance. And now on, on one level, that, that seems a bit discouraging because how many know when, when things are going bad, that's what we look for, right? <laughs> this is a problem. This is broken. This doesn't work. This is causing me pain. I want this to be fixed. Um, and we don't, we're not going to get that in Hebrews. But I will say we, I will... I will encourage you, we will get something that works better than fixing the circumstance. We'll get to it, I promise. Um, So he he doesn't give them a fix. Second thing we don't see is he doesn't allow the trials and the struggles to lower their expectation of their experience in Christ. He doesn't deny these problems, but at the same time, when things are are hard, it's it's easy to give each other a pass, right? When somebody's going through something, um, and, and something doesn't work out, or, or they, 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 they fail at something, and it, it's out of, I think, mostly out of compassion, or out of a sense of, like, you know, empathy, we've been there. Our, our reflex, a lot of times, is, is to just sympathize with this person, right? Oh, that is, that is so bad. And we kind of enter into the, the unfortunateness of the circumstance. But that's not what the author does, he, he doesn't act, that's kind of like what your friends and your family does. We come alongside, you know, your mom, oh, that's, you know, like, you, you, if, you're a, if you're, again, if you're an athlete and you have a, a bad game, you know, and you, you go to your mom, what's your, your mom's going to, that's okay, those guys, they, those refs, those mean refs were just bad, and, you know, you, it's just, you did your best, and it, it's not your fault, and all this that's what we tend to do to, to each other. And, and I think we do it because we want, you know, we genuinely care and we want to make people feel better. 
But that's not what the author here does. He acts more like a coach than a family member. Right? A family member will make you feel better. A coach will help you get better. Right? And there is a, there's a big difference there. Uh, what we are going to see here is, is someone writing to a group of people that is refusing to let them let their circumstances stop them from being everything that he knows Jesus has called them to be. And that is, that is I think, the most encouraging part of Hebrews, is that the, one of the, the themes that runs through it is, yes, your circumstances aren't necessarily going to change, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is greater and you can still live a victorious, overcoming life in spite of the fact of any circumstance. Amen? Amen. He acts like a coach. We need more of a coaching mentality in the church. We need to learn how to develop um, relationships with each other that are deep enough that we can have that sort, of, that sort of connection to each other. That we don't just fall into this, this oh, I'm just going to help you feel better about the bad things that happen to you. And we get to a place where we are close enough and dedicated enough to each other and to Jesus that we are saying, no, I'm not gonna, we're not going to stop there. We're going to keep going and figure out how we can get better together. That's called discipleship. <laughs> and that's what, that's what the, this author is pointing to. He is discipling this group of, of, of Hebrew uh, Christians through this difficult time. So that's what he doesn't do. What does he do? How does he coach them? He does kind of two things, well, three things, and he, and he does it over and over and over again throughout this book. You'll see it kind of runs in a, in, in a cycle. First thing he does is he always starts with, he points to Jesus. He points to Jesus. He is, his authority, his power, his identity. The main point of this, we've mentioned it before, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is the right solution. Jesus is the answer. How is he better than any and every other thing we might look to for safety and comfort? That's the question that, that, that the author answers in this book. In and through Jesus, we have, we have a better identity, a better power, a better authority, a better destiny, a better hope a better love, a more joy than any other source we would look to for those things. So the first thing he does is he points to Jesus. And the second thing he does is he then gives warning against the things that threaten us getting to Jesus, right? So he, he paints us, he'll over and over again, he'll paint a picture of, of an aspect of who Jesus is, and then he will warn against something that threatens us to experience that reality. And we'll see that um, over and over again, that there, there's a, a number of different ways that we become disconnected from, from Jesus and who he is. Um, he talks about drifting and departing and disobedience and dullness and despising and defying. Don't worry, we're not going to get to all those today. So he gives a warning, and then... He doesn't just leave it there. This is what I love. Another thing I love about scriptures, it's so, it's so practical. He, he, he ends those warnings with a practical focus to combat that particular threat. All right, so we're going to, so over and over again in the next few weeks, I'll just, just spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to get a warning about things that make us stop talking about Jesus. And then we're going to learn something to help us not stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> Does that sound good? Um, all right. Well, we're about to, so let's just, we're about to dive in, but let's just uh, invite the, the, the Lord to, to bless his word this morning. Jesus, we, we thank you for being here with us this morning. God, we've, we've sung to you. We, we've sensed your presence. We thank you for, for being here with us. God, as we, we dive into your word, we ask that you would, you would empower it, that your spirit would speak through your word to change our hearts, to connect us to you, to give us a vision for how we can, how we can encourage and, and, and build each other up to continue to, to follow you more. In your name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, excuse me. Uh, Hebrews. 
We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. So if you, if you have your Bibles want to turn them on or open them, feel free. We're going to start in, in verse 1. And this is going to be much more, um, the series, you know, there's different ways, kind of teaching styles, and I'm kind of schizophrenic, so I tend to jump back and forth. This, this series is going to be more... Um, Expositional, we're, it's, it's not so much topical. Uh, we're just going to not fully go verse by verse because we'd be here till like, you know, this time next year if we did a true verse by verse study. Um, but we're going to just kind of walk through the passage and, and let, let the original author kind of dictate the pace and the, 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 the kind of flow of, of, of the truth, if that's, if that's all right with you. Um, sometimes I think... The best thing to do is just to get out of the way a little bit and just let Scripture speak for itself. So that's what we're going to be seeking to do a bit with this, with this series. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. So he starts out here kind of with a bang. Um, there's no greeting, as I mentioned before. There's none of the, the prefunctory stuff we normally get in a letter. Um, he just jumps right in. When I read this, ver- when I read this verse, the first thing I heard uh, in my head, it kind of reminded me of like, you ever been to the like the planetarium at Kosai, you know? And it's like all dark, and it goes down, and then it kicks on, and it's long ago, you know? It's this big booming voice. It's kind of what the author is 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 starting with here. This big grand idea that long ago God God spoke many times to to our ancestors so he's taking them way back to the beginning he says in verse 2 and now in these final days he has spoken to us through his son so he's jumping right to Jesus God promised everything to the son as an inheritance and through the son he created the universe we're reminded here of the bigness of Jesus. This is the first, the first thing that the author wants us to know and, and meditate and understand about Jesus is that his, his grandness, his size, that Jesus created the universe. Through Jesus, everything that exists, exists through him. That's big. That's huge. That also means that Jesus is not just a man. He predates creation, let alone humanity. And he goes on, he says, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Now that that phrase, I love that phrase, character of God. It's actually a reference to um, the the stamp that they would use to create the the Roman coinage. you know, they they make coins and they'd have the, the emperor's face on it or whatever. The, the the stamp that they used to press that image into the coin was was called a character. So when it talks about the, the character of God, that he expresses the very character of God, it's saying that, that Jesus is the one that impresses that image into creation. It's an, just an awesome picture. And he sustains everything by his mighty by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. What a big picture. We are reminded here of God's, on a cosmic scale of who Jesus is. We have to, we can never forget how big our God is. Sometimes we lose that. Verse 4, though, this shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name, the name God gave him is greater than their names. And he, so the, the author here is going in a little bit uh, of, of a different direction. He says for the next 10 verses or so, um, he lays out this, this ironclad case how, how Jesus is better than angels. He's, he's superior in every way. To, to angels now th- there are there are still some groups and this is this is one of those the reason the author does this is there was there was some groups back then that that um, were claiming claiming to be Christian but they're also claiming that Jesus was an angel was a part of a, a part of the the angelic hosts um, now it's important 
it was important for him to defend it then, and it's important for us to understand now why it's important that that's not true. Because Jesus, if he's an angel, he's not God. He can't be both. Angels are, are created beings. God is God. It's two completely separate things. Um, while we're on the topic, when we die, we don't become angels. Right? We, we, angels, God created angels and God created humans. There is no, there's no transfer of title. Right? You, you, don't, you don't get wings when you die. Um, that's, a, that's a different group of, of beings altogether. Um, that one's for free. It's not in the text, but just felt like that. <laughs> it fit. Um, there were groups back then that, that were, were confusing this. And, you, and like I said, today, that's still a thing. Um, there are still groups that people that, that are cl- claim to be Christian that still teach that Jesus is an angel. The, the Jehovah's Witness um, uh, religion, they believe that, that Jesus before he was on earth, was uh, the, the archangel, uh, the Michael, I believe it is. And then he kind of reconstituted himself as Jesus the man on earth. And then when he, when, he, when he died, he went back up to heaven and he became the angel again. That's not true. And this, the, this, this section of, of Hebrews, if you need ever are, are questioning that or someone else is questioning it, this is where you go. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 4. You read that, and it will clear up all your questions that Jesus is not, was not, will not, cannot be an angel in any way. Now, for us, that, that's important for us to know. But I think the, the section has two takeaways that, that are a little more significant for, for us. Um, and we find that at the, the, um, in the, the last verse of, of this part of the passage. Verse 14 says, Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. First, this... The first takeaway here is this just reinforces how huge Jesus is. We have these, these, these beings, these spiritual beings that anytime any human has any interaction with one of these things, when they are kind of like in, in, in their natural state, not when they're like hiding the fact that they're an angel, but whenever they're just like, hey, I'm an angel, what is our reaction we freak out, right? We see these giant things, and, and, it, and it blows our minds, and we are literally scared to death in some cases. Um, these are just Jesus' butlers. They're the guys he just, like, asks to go, you know, tidy his room and, and just go run errands for him. That's how huge Jesus is. He... He is ginormous, as my kids would say. Um, and here's the second takeaway. Jesus has an army of spirits that he has commissioned to take care of us. That should be an amazing encouragement to us. Not that we, we don't, I mean, we can, you know, we're good at falling off the horse on both sides. We can, you can get a little crazy with that and spend all your days trying to, you know, figure out what your angel's name is and, you know, his address and how to, how to you know, get him to do stuff. We're not, we're not talking about that. But it should be an encouragement to know that there are untold numbers of angels filling this world just waiting for, for Jesus to give them the command to care and protect you and me. That should give us hope. That should give us confidence. That should, that should be a reassuring reality that I think sometimes uh, we, we, we neglect. That there, are, there is an army of angels that is, that is on our side because Jesus has told them, hey, see these guys? Those are, those are my guys. You take care of them. That's encouraging. And that kind of brings us to the, the, the conclusion of, of chapter 1. Um, I'm going to try and get through chapter, three, chapter 2 today. Um, 
because we need to get kind of finish our cycle. And we see our first warning here at the beginning of, of chapter 2. He says, so, or another, uh, some translations say, therefore, that's always a good, you know, an important word in, in scripture. Whenever you hear it, see a so or a therefore, you know, um, you got to find out what it's there for, of course, because it's, it's a good dividing line. It means everything I just said, now I'm going to tell you why it's important, right? Um, or what you need to do next. So here comes the warning. It says, therefore, we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. I think it's interesting that the first warning he, this author gives is not against some big giant rebellion or some big um, dramatic uh, thing. It's against drifting away. The imagery he uses here is like a like a boat on a river without an anchor. It's a it's a you just moved by the currents. Listen, the life of a Christian should not be a go with the flow kind of life. A go with the flow existence. This is a warning against lack of effort and lack of attention. It's a warning against neglect. He's saying, guys, you got to watch out for this. This is if you're going to if you're going to stay faithful with Jesus, if you are going to overcome, it's going to have to take a, a greater effort on your part. Verse two, he says, "For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished." punished. Basically, that's just saying um, it's a reference to the law of Moses, the Old Testament again. Um, and he says that he's basically saying, look, the, the, the original message that was sent by angels um, was serious. And it took a lot of effort to stay in covenant. It took a lot on, on, on people's behalf to, to, to be faithful to that. It's saying that the, the laws, God, God's law has never bent to fit your way of life. That's not the way God ever did it in the Old Testament. There's a, um, a Christian historian that, that used to come here named Marshall Foster, and he had this phrase I'll never forget. He always used to say, um, you don't break God's laws, God's laws break you. So he, he, the author kind of it's talking about the Old Testament saying the, the old way of doing things took maximum effort. It took a lot of work. And then he continues. He says, so what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us through those who heard him speak? And then confirmed the message by giving us signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. What he or, or she, whoever wrote this, uh, is saying is that whatever gave you the idea that now that we have a greater salvation brought to you directly by our great Savior, not just given to, to Moses and through angels, confirmed by a bigger miracle, paid for by a greater sacrifice, what made you think that all of that is going to require less effort on your part? He's acknowledging that faithfully following Jesus is not easy. And this is a truth that we have to embrace. Our goal should not be should be progress and victory, not comfortability. Sometimes we're susceptible to this drifting because we actually think that it's the goal. It's really easy to get, to get this, this, this kind of American mindset that the goal is to get to a, we call it spiritual maturity, right? Where we say, man, I, 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 my, I, should, I should get to a mature place in Jesus where at some point following him just becomes effortless. That if I, if, I just, if I just love him enough and I work and do the, the right things, as the, the more mature I get, the, the easier this is going to get. The more I'm going to want to do these things, the better I get at it. On and on and on. Um, that, is, that is a lie. 
That is, that is not what we, that is not what Jesus said. <laughs> that is not the model we see with the disciples. Did their lives get easier? No. And sometimes we can actually feel guilty for struggling. And I'm here to tell you that that guilt is false guilt. That's that's another one of those little stinking tricks of the enemy to to try and twist reality. You should be the struggle is real. <laughs> The struggle is a part of it. Until Jesus comes back or until you go to him, the struggle is real. And the final part of this passage, the author explains why. In chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, the writer describes how God's great plan was to give humanity dominion over and rule over a good, beautiful harmonious kingdom, right? That reflected his character. That's, that's Adam in the garden. That was the original intent. So that man could thrive in peace and joy and communion. That was, the, that was the original design. And then in, in chapter 2, verse 8, the problem that we struggle with emerges. It says, you gave them, you being humanity, Authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. So that's the ideal, right? God created humanity in the garden to have this amazing existence and this uh, this unbelievable connection to him and to each other. And there's a part of us that knows that that is, we know that that is what, what should be. We have a sense that that is what should be happening. But then we have the second part of the verse. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. Here's where the problem comes in. We see this great big Jesus. We hear about and read about his power, his superiority. But then we look around and we don't see that paying off in real time. You know, it's like, it's like when you... you anybody ever um, book a hotel online um, that you think is going to be really cool? I'm, I'm the worst at this, Ash Shannon. Um, I've done this more times than I can count. You, you look at because I, I like you know I like cool design, so I always I pick these hotels and and it looks amazing. And then you get there, and you you can see that yes, technically the photo is the room, but it's a completely different kind of room than the photo would indicate. Anybody ever had that? It's just me. <laughs> you go in, you're like, oh man, I wish that picture was a scratch and sniff. This is not pleasant. Um, this is kind of what we have, have going on. That, that we, we, we see all this stuff in the grandness of, of the, the, the superiority of Jesus that we just were, the author was just dictating. But, but we look around and we go, I don't, I don't see that. There's a disconnect. That's not what I see when I look around. I don't, I don't see the evidence of a big giant Jesus who can do everything and is good and great and perfect and loving. Because that's, that's when I go out those doors, that's not how I see the world. The problem is we live in the middle of a collision between two realities. There's, there's, the, the, there's the, the reality of, what, of the kingdom that is coming, the not yet, and the now. The not yet is the fullness of God's great plan for you and for me and for this earth and, and his kingdom coming, but it's not yet here. And it's the, the reality, the tension of those two things together that, that creates in us doubt and frustration and, 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 and guilt and, and, and insecurity. If we're honest, sometimes it doesn't really help to know that there is a... a, a we talk about all the, the grandeur of God and, and, and this great plan that's yet to come. And sometimes we look around, and when the now gets really, really bad, sometimes if we're honest, they have to say, you know what, that, that doesn't, that's not helpful. I don't, I don't really care about the, what's to come. Because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get there, because this now is kind of choking me out a little bit. Anybody ever been there? 
When our now is full of uncertainty, when our now is looking in the mirror at a person that you, you don't like very much, when our now is, is, is lonely and, and boring. See, Hebrews begins with this big vision of a big Jesus, but the author ends this section with another view of Jesus. He starts with the, with the view of the not yet, but he ends with the view of Jesus that we need for the now. Verse 8, he says, you know, but we have not yet seen all these things put under authority. He acknowledges the tension and the, the, the difficulty that we're experiencing. But then in verse 9, he, he gives us some direction. Verse 9, he says, what we do see is Jesus. And he gives us a different version of Jesus. Not a conflicting one, but another side. Who was given a position a little lower than the angels. Again, that phrase, it's an Old Testament phrase. It just means um, he became a man. He was given a position as a man. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children to glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Listen, if we're going to live a life that isn't adrift, we have to get really good at thinking about the big Jesus described in chapter 1. But we equally need to embrace the picture of Jesus we find in chapter 2, which is a close Jesus. A Jesus that didn't stay as just this cosmic, all-powerful being, but one that, that, that loved us so much he came as one of us, to be close to us. He becomes one of us. He suffers for us. He suffers with us. Who, according to verse 11, this, is, this really struck me this week, just the reality of it. He calls us his brothers and sisters. How close a relationship is that? That's... that's Earthly speaking, a good brother-sister relationship is like the closest bond you can have in a lot of ways. Listen, I have, I have two kids. Um, they are a number of, uh, they're about three years apart. Um, but they, they are close. Like, and when I read this verse, I just think of them. So Cohen, Cohen is nine and... Gracie six and they, to this day they still have they both have bedrooms but to this day neither of them have slept alone because they refuse to they just every couple of months they end up switching rooms of where they are sleeping but it's always together even when they fight they still choose to refuse to leave each other alone any other parents experience this phenomenon? They're driving each other's nuts, making each other miserable. And when I, but when I suggest to them playing by themselves or separating and going into other rooms to play, they look at me like I've quit speaking English. Because they're that close. They can't fathom not being, you know, tied at the hip 24-7. This is the type of relationship that Jesus chooses to, to tell us, to, to paint for us, of who he wants to be in our lives. And if we're going to, to fight the drifting that we are, we are being warned against here, we have, to, we have to be intentional about focusing on his closeness. The fact that Jesus wants to, can be, and is close to you. And listen, if, if, if you don't feel close to Jesus right now, um, that is an experiential thing, but it's not reality. 
Even in our, our worst moment, we may, be, we may feel disconnected from Jesus, but Jesus is always there. In fact, I believe it's sometimes in those darkest places where we feel the most distance from him, he's really actually the closest. That's what makes us feel, you know, it's like that, that saying, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> Jesus is, is very uh, stubborn, and he doesn't want to be out of your mind. And so he, he pursues us even in those, 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 those dark places. Even when there's, there, it feels like there's distance there. Jesus, it's, it's never on his side. Jesus is close to us. As we close today, I just want to, I want to, pray for anybody that, that, that maybe, maybe needs not just a reminder, but needs to experience his closeness again. Maybe you're going through something um, significant uh, and, and, and you just need an extra, you need to know that he's close. Maybe, maybe you've experienced some drifting. You look at, the, you know, the, the last year and a half, two years has been a perfect recipe for drifting in a lot of ways. Um, not the least of which could be our, our relationship with, with Jesus. And so maybe you're, you're saying, you know, I, I have been drifting, if I'm, if I'm honest. Just kind of been on autopilot. I'm going to pray for you this morning. So everyone's just, just a, if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes and bow your heads. And if that's you, if you would honestly say this morning, God, Jesus, I need, to, I, need, I need to know you're close this morning. For whatever, whatever the reason, whether it's drifting or circumstances or just, just hey, man, sometimes this is not something, some, sometimes when we, we, we have prayer moments like this, I feel like we, we are regularly, uh, you know, it's like the people who don't have a tragedy going on or aren't struggling at the moment, they almost feel left out. Listen, you can, you can never ask Jesus for too much of himself. And so everybody is invited to invite Jesus closer today. So if that's you, I just encourage you to, to just uh, as a symbol of your, your openness and your desire, if you just want to raise your hand. This is a sign of joining me in this prayer. So Father, we, Jesus, we come to you and, and we acknowledge that that you are greater. God, that we, we need to know you. God, for some of us, we, we acknowledge, we admit, we, we confess that we have drifted, that we, we are not as close to you as we once were, that we have, we have not been vigilant and intentional about pursuing you, about staying close to you, about, about examining your word and keeping it in our hearts. And we, we, we say we're sorry, forgive us. And Lord, Holy Spirit, would you just invade our hearts, our minds, our souls, our emotions, our spirits this morning? with a new sense of, of how close you are, a sense that, that empowers and encourages and, and, and gives us direction and hope and joy. Father, we, we stand here and we, we acknowledge, we believe that you desire to, to, to be close, that you, you are not a, a, an aloof God. And that you, you have put your spirit within us for the purpose of connection. For the purpose of, of knowing and, and connecting and, and, and feeling who you are that drives us to know you more. Not just on an emotional level, but intellectual and spiritual, our whole being God. God, we commit this morning to, to be more intentional to focus 
on you. Not just the things you want us to do, not just being a better Christian, but you, the person of Jesus, that we we are going to intentionally invite you to be close. We are going to pause to remember that you are and experience your presence. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. 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 I one more. I got one thing. Uh, if, if you prayed that, I, I just have a, a challenge for you this this week. Um, before you go, actually, you can do this right now. It's very simple. Um, just about, I'm sure most people in the room have have a a, a smartphone. Um, I don't know if you use the alarms on your phone. Um, you have them, whether you've ever seen it, used it or not. If you go to the little app thing, you can click clock or just type in clock, search clock and it'll come up and there'll be a little alarm thing. I want to challenge you to do this. Before you leave today or sometime today, set an alarm and I want you to label it, Jesus, you are close. And I want you to set that alarm for every day this week at whatever time you choose. If you want to be extra, extra good, set, set two or three alarms with the same thing so that every day this week, two or three times during the day, you are, you are something in your, let's use these for something productive. It's going to remind you that Jesus is close. And you can take that moment. You don't have to do, I'm not asking you to do a whole lot other than pause in that second, read it, allow that to remind you of God's presence in that moment. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.